Okay, so um, we're in a series working through the book of Titus, um, and we are to, if you're going to turn there, Titus chapter 2, and we're going to cover verses 11 to 15, 11 to 15. So, little review. So, this is, this is the Apostle Paul. He's writing a letter to Titus, and what we've seen in some of the other um, lessons already brought here is that Titus is, is most likely a mature elder. He can be trusted. He's been around, and he is in a tough place, uh, this island of Crete. Um, there was an expression in the chapter 1 that they're lazy and evil beasts of some sort. So, just culturally, that area is pretty rough. Uh, but still, those are the people that we are reaching. Those are the people that they are reaching, and they need the gospel just like somebody that would be, quote-unquote, good. Um, so, Paul's writing to Titus. He covers things as he usually does, is be careful of bad leadership. Um, you need to, you know, carefully vet out the elders in the church, and he's given those, that requirement. Um, he is also goes through... In teaching those elders, the actual relationships that you'll have in the church, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, employee, empl well, I'm changing that really, it's, uh, you know, so slave and, and owner or master, and we kind of translate that in, into our society more like an employer-boss type relationship, all laid out uh, in the Bible. So we get to this text. Um, and this is actually, you know, verse 11 starts with the word for, and this is actually the foundation of everything that he's already said. It's going to be in these next verses. So he's going to say, for the grace of God has appeared. So he's going into the gospel. So before we get started, let me pray, because uh, I need help and, and we need help, as always. Let's ask God. Father, we thank you for... Uh, this night, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that has been put in each of us here, that has opened our minds to see and to know and to love you. Thank you for that. We ask tonight, we also know that we are still damaged. We still only see in part. We're still prone to sin. We're still prone to turn from you. So we need help and we need to continue to grow. Would you pour out your spirit even here tonight? Let us see in your word all the greatness you want us to see. And we do ask that you also would take those facts that we will see, but that you will make them real reality to us, that we would treasure them and that we would know you through them. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read through the text once quickly, and then, one, then we're going to go through it rather quickly again and just kind of highlight a couple things and then I'm going to pull some things out and make them much larger. Just as I was preparing, I think that's the best route. So verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us 
from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Okay, so let's take, that's a plain reading. Now let's just take a little bit of a walkthrough. I'm going to define some terms and some of these we're going to go back on and some of them we are not. So he starts off with, he says, for the grace. Now there's, that, there's a word grace that we use all the time in Christianity. And sometimes the, the meaning can be, you know, it kind of gets lumped in there with all the other, um, you know, Christianese type terms. And we can kind of lose meaning on it. So what has really helped me is that for these words that are super common, and we're not out just shopping and, you know, going about our day using the word grace all the time. So it it really has a context pretty much in Christianity, but it's really good for us to know. So whenever I see the word grace, I I plug in these three words and, and know that there's something in it along these lines. So I use the words undeserved, kind, action, okay? Now, I know historically, like I used to use this phrase, unmerited favor, but I kind of moved away from that because unmerited is not really something we use really often. And also favor sounds like just kind of like mushy feelings, you know. But the grace of God is active. It is action. He is doing something in each case. It's not just, he's not just having a feeling toward us. He is acting toward us. And that's good to recognize. So I use undeserved kind action for grace. So it says, for the grace of God has appeared, that's talking about the first, what we call the first advent or the first appearing of Jesus Christ on the earth, okay, bringing, now now this next phrase can be confusing because it says literally bringing salvation for all people. Now that can sound like universal atonement, right? The grace of God appeared, brought salvation for everyone in 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 its way, but as commentators talk about this, you know, they say if you study the words and certainly the rest of Scripture, it's simply not true. Jesus dying on the cross does not save every single person that ever lived, okay? So what they say is this word bringing would be better translated probably making available salvation for all people. You see the way that fits better? Making available, but not actually, you know, saving them unless they turn to him in faith. Verse 12. Training us to renounce, to renounce means it's just a formal declaration. Training us, this grace that God has given us, that he's put his spirit in us, he's caused us to be born again, actually is training us to renounce, making formal declaration among our family and friends. We're renouncing our old life, our sinful nature. Here he says ungodliness and worldly passions. We'll take more of a look at that. And to live self-controlled, pretty self-explanatory, upright, meaning righteous or good, and godly lives in the present age. Now, he uses the term present age. Present age is to be understood as the age, I'll just say, of fallen man, all the way back from the fall of man, all the way to the second coming when what we'll say is paradise is restored. So paradise is lost, man falls, all the way to the end when Jesus comes again and paradise is restored. So that's the present age, and then the Bible has, it calls the next age, the age to come. Okay. So that's what it means by present age. Verse 13. Eagerly waiting. Oh, sorry. I threw the eagerly in there. That waiting has a connotation with it of eagerly. Eagerly waiting. We're actually like chomping at the bit for our blessed hope 
the appearing of the glory. So it's this second appearing. It's actually given, and we're going we're gonna to talk more about this, so I don't want to say much about it now. But this blessed hope is pulling us into the future. As a Christian, we, 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 we know what's coming. We know Jesus is coming. We know what's going to be there. So we're being pulled into the future by, by this. Um, the, his second appearing, the appearing of the glory. Um, let me define that word, too. This glory... Um, is another word used mostly in Christianity. And what I always plug in when I see glory is supreme excellence. Okay? So even if you say, oh, I want to glorify God, you're crediting to him supreme excellence in what he tells you to do. Or if you want to look at something in nature, and you're like, wow, that is awesome, and and you see the glory of God in it, you see he's in his supreme excellence, he made and is sustaining that. So you see the way that that word glory works? Because that can kind of get mystical too. So the appearing of the glory of the supreme excellence of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. Redeem means simply to purchase back. We were lost. We're bought back. Redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession. That would be like a family, that possession. That's the relationship. Who are zealous for good works. That's the change in us. Verse 15, declare, meaning teach. He's Now he's telling uh, Titus straight up, teach and preach these things. Exhort, meaning urgently encourage. And rebuke, correcting the false teaching. With all authority, let no one disregard you. Okay? So I'm going to go back through this, pull out more uh, going forward, and, but we're probably not going to do much because we talk about it so much in verses 14 and 15, but we're going to do a lot more in the rest. Okay. So back to verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So I want to talk more about that grace, that undeserved, kind action of God. We recognize two, basically two ways we see grace, two major categories. One of them would be the common grace of God, um, which, would, which would be God's undeserved, kind action that is common to all people, not just the good or the Christian. So that would be common grace. In Matthew 5, uh, Jesus says, For God makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You see, so just because someone is evil in the world doesn't mean that God makes everything rough their way. No, he's still good to them. He gives them common grace. It's it's activity. Rain, in this example, what is it? Rain and... What was the other one? Oh, sun... The two major things that drive everything. Without the rain and sun, you have no food. With no food, you don't exist. So those are the drivers of everything, and God is generously giving them both to evil people and to good people. He doesn't push that either way. So we call that common grace. Uh, Examples, the sun, rain, food, shelter, family, work, government, breath, abilities, gifts, pleasures, and comfort, on and on. Anything good. Now, why is that? I mean, why is it that those are graces? You would think, 
Nah, I got a right to that. Why, do you, why, do, why would they not have a right before God to that? Why would man, any man, not have a right before God? Because he's a sinner. He's a criminal. He forfeited his rights. If God executed on him what he deserves, he would immediately die and go to hell forever. So anything that he is taking in now is grace. It's undeserved, kind action. It's a common grace from God. No man deserves that. God doesn't owe any man anything except eternal punishment. That's why it's common grace. Okay, now the one we talk about the most, uh, saving grace is the other one. So we have common grace on one side, everybody. Now, saving grace is God's undeserved kind action towards some individuals, saving them, that's what we call saving grace, saving them from well-deserved eternal destruction. Now, in that saving grace, I just got these texts that have these huge topics in them. In that saving grace, that's going to cover everything in God's plan of redeeming or saving people. It's massive, his activity even. It starts before time. So, you know, before the foundation of the world, Christ was slain, right? In other words, in their mind, that was all part of the plan. The saving grace started then and moves all the way through eternity as God even carries us. So, some major steps in that. Saving grace. The story goes like this. First, God makes everything perfect and beautiful, paradise, right? Then there's the tragic fall of man. Then the first appearing of Jesus is all part of it. Then the first appearing of Jesus is he comes into the world, saves sinners. We're going to get more into this. The second appearing is he returns with justice now, and paradise is restored, and everybody who's not, because justice is served, everybody who's not in, you know, in, faith with God or born again or the saved goes to hell while everyone else lives happily ever after. That's like the briefest summary and paradise is restored. The briefest I could give it, but we're going to get more into it here. Okay, so foundation and backstory, the big picture. This has really helped me over time. Uh, actually, I was having a conversation with Spence not too long ago, and um, we were talking about, so what's the big deal with death? You know, wh why is the resurrection so critical? You know, we, we make such a big deal, but I mean, your whole faith hangs on that. And because, you know, people in general society, they all think they're floating off into somewhere nice, you know. Um, but it is a big deal. So let's see how the Bible, which is the source of all of this truth as to what is happening around us. The story goes like this. Um, actually, my little title here was to understand death, the catastrophic, tragic fall of mankind. Not a small event at all. Here's the story in plain, try to be plain words. God creates the universe, the earth, and everything in it. Then male and female in his image. And this is from Genesis. And God saw everything that he made, and behold... It was very good. This is a beautiful, beautiful world at this point. This is paradise. God living with them. God happily lives with Adam and Eve in this new paradise. But they choose to ignore God's decree for living. You guys know the story of Adam and Eve. 
Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then they were deceived and they did. And everything comes apart. The curse of sin and death is instituted on the earth. The core fabric and order of the whole world would now be tragically deformed and catastrophically broken. You know, sometimes we use the word broken, and it's a good word to describe the world. I think sometimes it comes up short, though. It is so distorted from the paradise that God made in the Garden of Eden and what he's going to restore that sometimes it doesn't serve well without some more adjectives to describe it. Part of, the, part of the reason we don't see it as that broken is because we've never lived in the paradise. We're used to it. We're used to sin. The human race would both die spiritually and physically. Paradise is lost. Man now lives on the earth under the curse of sin and death. In this curse, the human race is deceived, blinded, and self-focused, wanting a life independent from God. But see, no one was ever made to live independent from God. We were made to walk with Him, talk with Him, draw all resource from Him, worship Him. That's our best life. And we all turned away. The devil has got, I just want to throw the devil in here because he's always that guy hanging out there and you really don't know where he is. The devil is God's appointed agent. Now that was kind of a sweet way of putting it. E, like an evil prison warden. Okay? So the fall is here and Satan is in charge. He is the blinder. He is the deceiver. He is the, like Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. Every, uh, I forget what book it is. Another book says uh, they are all children of the devil. Actually calls the whole human race who's not saved children of the devil. Y you see, so he's like the one who's given the total control now. Sin, disease, disaster, and death now make this life painful and futile. We need help. We need help, which brings us to the first appearing of Jesus Christ. Grace, the grace of God has appeared. That's Christmas. God, the Son, in an enormous amount of love, they planned before eternity of even making, they're going to fall and we're going to go save them. We're going to go save them. The cost is going to be massive. Jesus, God, God, the Son, becomes a man, a human being. He's born. He's poor. He's dirty. He's cold. This is God we're talking about. He's rejected. He's alone. He's misunderstood. You know the rest. He's mocked, he's crucified, and he's killed. That's Christmas, but I started to shift into Easter. <laughs> so then there's Easter. He's killed on the cross. God, 
on the cross after being beat to death, and then the Father pours out. This is the real pain. This is the real pain that, you know, many men have been tortured and died. Many, 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 many. But not like this one. This one was going to bear the wrath of God. This is, this, is, this is what he had a glimpse of seeing in the cup in the Garden of Gethsemane that made him cry out to his father. It's not that he couldn't take the beating. The beating was bad. But the wrath of God for all, for all sin, that's a lot of sin. That's a lot of wrath. Then separation from his father, a union was broken right there. They had never been separated. And he cried out, why? Why have you forsaken me? The union's broken. But he had never sinned. So that curse that Satan's in charge of, sin and death, he goes into the grave where Satan rules and, and, and causes decay. He goes into the grave. But what's the, what's the phrase? The grave cannot hold him. The grave is only for sinners. That's the penalty. He's in the grave, but he didn't do anything. So he breaks the power of death. He's the first human to ever break the power of death. The stronghold that holds down millions and billions into that grave. And oh, that teaching that it's a beautiful circle of life is so stupid. Death is a tragic nightmare. It separates everybody, all your loved ones. Every, everything is a, is a mess. It tears every family apart. There's nothing beautiful about death. It is ugly. But he beats death, and he becomes the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. New spiritual body, which he gives to all those who trust in us. This is some of what is pulling us forward. Because, I don't know if you've checked it out lately, but we're not doing too good here. We're aging. And aging is slow dying. And it's ugly. Verse 12, this salvation that he brings and that we trust so much and that he's applied to us and he made us love, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It actually has a power in us. There's something happening in us, the Holy Spirit training us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This power will not be denied. We now see that that ungodliness that we lived was the very thing bringing about this death, was the very thing that he had to come down and save, and we don't want anything to do with it because now it still makes an interference between us and him. And we tend to read the word ungodliness, and we say, oh, well, at least I'm not ungodly. That's like someone really wicked. Well, hold on a second here. Ungodliness, thinking and acting as if there is no God. Jerry Bridges uh, wrote this book, Respectable Sins. Actually, I love this book um, because Respectable Sins, it was exactly about that, where we have among us sins that we just, because they're culturally accepted, they're just culturally everywhere, it tends to bleed into the body of Christ, into the believers, and, and then we end up doing them too. 
But all sin runs this interference, I'll just say. It's not that you're not saved. It just runs interference with the relationship. So it was, it was great. There wasn't one chapter I read. We, we would read a couple chapters and get together with the men for the group. There wasn't, there wasn't one that I read, and I thought, huh, that's not me. Now, every single one of them, I'm going, okay, I'm guilty again here. You know, but it, but it was a good, it's a good guilt, that's for sure. Because then you, then you can cry out and say, I, I, I need help. Will you help me kill this? I can't kill this on my own. But listen to what Jerry Bridges says about ungodliness, if you think it's not you. Ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of God's will or of God's glory or of one's dependence on God. God is essentially irrelevant in his or her life. They are not wicked people, but they are ungodly. You see, it's, it's just an indifference to God. He goes on, though. This is where the Christian, the believer, comes in. Now, the sad fact is that many of us who are believers tend to live our daily lives with little or no thought of God. We may even read our Bibles and pray for a few minutes at the beginning of each day. But then we go out into the day's activities and basically live as though God doesn't exist. We seldom think of our dependence on God or our responsibility to Him. We might go for hours with no thought of God at all. In that sense, we are hardly different from our nice, decent, but unbelieving neighbor. God is not at all in his thoughts and is seldom in ours. Now that just got a little more convicting, huh? You see, this, re you know, this relationship, I think Jerry Bridges is nailing this, this relationship, because this, this, this is me, this is my struggle. This relationship that we have God is an all-day relationship. And at the end, I'm going to get into a little bit more about how we can carry that relationship throughout the day. Okay, just we'll press on. Worldly passions, what are those? But that means both sinful passions, obvious things, selfishness, lust, greed, bitterness, lying, stealing, just sinful passions. But it also means this. This is where it gets most of us. And permitted activities that become a stumbling passion. Sports, I'm just going to name some of our culture. Sports, things become too much. All of a sudden, all the things, the, the, the common graces God puts in your life, start to replace Him, the relationship with Him. You're, you're, you're busy with your sports, you're busy with this hobby, you're doing this, you're doing that, you're working, you're doing that. You're doing that. Where's He? Where's He in all that? You see, it becomes our worldly passions just dominate us. And, and I, don't, I don't think I'm alone in that, but... It's something we have to look at. Instead, we replace it with self-control. Control of one's actions, feelings, and thoughts. Jerry Bridges, again, I'll quote him here. Self-control implies self-restraint. We need to practice toward the good and legitimate things of life, as well as the outright denial of things clearly sinful. It's that good and legitimate. I mean, I hope we get all the lying, stealing, and all those things down. But it's those legitimate things that are out of control. Even in our culture, like work is, is so promoted and business and growing and always just any financial advantage, 
boom, take it, take it, take it. What about God? What about God? What if all that work takes from your time from supporting his kingdom and, and doing all the work, he, you know, the, the work that is involved in that? It needs to be looked at. Okay. Verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is in reference to the second advent or the second appearing. His first appearing, he, remember he came as a lamb. I did not come to condemn the world. The world is already condemned. But now, when he comes again, he is coming to condemn the world. He is coming with wrath. Okay? So, but for us, it's a totally different story. Waiting for the blessed hope. Now, my small group was talking about this word, too. I don't know if you remember, Jim. Do you remember this? I don't know if you were there. Um, Jim's in my small group. Waiting for the blessed hope. The word hope, we started to notice when we were talking about it in my group, the word hope, the way we understand it in the English language, wasn't fitting with what the Bible was saying. So we were just like, there's something wrong with this word, you know, the, the use of this word here. So hope, the way we use the word hope, actually uh, connotates an uncertainty in it. But the word hope in the Bible is supposed to be certain. Okay, so let's work this out. I got a quote here from Tim Keller. Um, the English word hope, he says, the biblical concept of hope is very poorly served by our, our English word. Our English word communicates uncertainty. For example, so uh, the lottery. You would say to someone, you go get your lottery ticket, and you're looking at it, and you say to somebody, I hope I win. Now, you see, they're, they're, that use of the word hope is like, I'm uncertain that I'm going to win, but I have a chance to win. You see, there's just like this vague uncertainty in there. Um, or you would just say, I hope Jack is coming. That's uncertain. That's not, that's not that certainty in there. Now, on the other side of this, biblical hope, we'll start calling it biblical hope. Keller says, all a life shaped, here's what biblical hope is. This is the way the Bible's actually using it. Of something you know will happen. Certainty with hope in the New Testament. And it's used 80 times. 80 times. We're supposed to read certainty with anticipation. And this hope, biblical hope, brings strength and courage and joy amid hardship. It pulls forward. You know, here's a couple of examples of how this works like in your heart. Take this, you have two men, scenario, made up scenario. You have two men working for a year, and here's the offer. It's the same exact job, same conditions, dismal, monotonous, menial, long hours. One man, you tell him, at the end of this, you're going to get $15,000 at the end of the year. The second man, you tell him, you're going to get $15 million. Now, in about the third month, the $15,000 guy, he's going, oh, my gosh. I don't even know this is worth it. I'm not going to finish this. This isn't worth it. But what's the $15 million guy doing? He's going, he's going along because he's got a bigger prize. He's whistling Dixie. He's got strength. He'll be back next week. The other guy's going, I ain't going to make it. 
You see the difference? One guy has biblical hope. He has certain anticipation that is carrying him and giving him strength. That's amidst hardship. If the job's nasty, he's going, but look at that goal. I'm getting my 15 mil. The other guy's going 15,000. I'm, I'm done. He's weak. Here's another example. You've got to picture yourself here in a Braveheart battle. You know Braveheart the movie? You know, I just had to go back then to get away from the guns. Uh, not, not away from for any particular reason, but it serves better in this example. So picture yourself in this battle, or if you want, you're watching the movie, whatever you want to do. But you're losing ground. Men around you are dying. You're tired, okay? You're weak, and it seems like you're going to lose, and it's just a matter of time. You, become, you just start to become dejected. You're wondering how long it's going to be before you're going to die, you know? Then you start to hear something in the distance, and it, sa- it starts to get louder, and it starts to almost sound like rumbling thunder, and it dawns on you that a massive reinforcement is coming. Massive reinforcement is coming for you. And you're going to crush them. You're going to crush the enemy. And all of a sudden, you're like, well, dang, we got this now. And you see, but what just happened? Hope, biblical-type hope filled you, gave you strength. They're not here yet. You didn't win yet, but they're coming. They're coming with certainty. It's getting louder, and and the reinforcements are thundering in there. Do you, do you see that emotion? Do you see that carrying forward? And w- that's, where, that's where we're supposed to put to the biblical hope side. Okay, so just, just keep that biblical hope in mind. That is pulling us forward. Two, the second appearing, the second coming, the return of Christ, the new heaven, and the new earth. Okay, this shocked me. Over 200 times in the New Testament, the second coming of Christ is mentioned. Or in, some, or in some fashion or whatever. That's a lot of times. Because usually, uh, this was true with me when I was first a Christian. Usually we, we take and, you know, you, we tell our friends you need to be a Christian, save from your sins, judgment. You know, it's all, it's all good, don't worry. But you just hate to kind of, things have kind of been the same. And you hate to just kind of go, yeah, and he's coming again. What? That sounds a little weird. You know, because everything's kind of going the way it normally goes, right? It just sounds a little bit weird and it, sometimes it, it is a teaching that, that we can kind of recoil from. But I'm shocked the New Testament does not recoil from this at all. Matter of fact, it has many names. Um, the judgment of the great day. The day of judgment. The day of wrath. The last day. The day of the Lord. And so all these terms are all throughout. And I don't, we just read right through them. Like I said, I was really surprised to see it there. But it is a certainty. And we're supposed to see them as if the Calvary is coming. It's all going to be over for good. You know, my community group, I always talk, talk, talk about my groups, but, you know, we had this little chat. And we had to admit that some of us were like going, uh, kind of, can you hold off a little bit, God, with, that come, with Jesus, with that coming back? Because kind of got some things we might want to accomplish here first, you know? And then one person did bring up this kind of this noble thing, which was good. They said, well, maybe delay just so we can save more people. You know, that makes sense. You know, we have loved ones that aren't saved yet, so if you come, it's kind of over. 
right? So that's, that's legit, right? But, but I found in myself, if I had to be honest, where it's like, oh no, there's fun I still want to have, like bucket list type stuff or accomplishments or whatever. And I, I, I think when, when that's in my mind, I'm not seeing what's really going to happen as best for everybody. Because really what I'm saying is, God, I want you to delay and all of that tragedy that I was talking about earlier, all of the sin reeling through the world, I'm just saying continue while I just have a little more fun or satisfaction. That can get pretty selfish right there, you know? Ask the people in Ukraine, the Christians in Ukraine, if they would like Jesus to delay as they lose their properties and their houses and their loved ones. I don't think they're saying delay, Lord Jesus. They're saying, come, Lord Jesus. We just happen to live on very safe ground usually here. Okay, moving on. The great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a straight-up, you know, connecting Jesus as God. You know, this was always a little bit of a struggle for me, too. You know, you had, when you were a little kid, some Sunday school, and you had your flannel graph Jesus and Jesus in a manger, and then... Jesus is a man, a meek man. And, as, and it, it has been just really good for my soul to see him clearly as God. Truly all God, the Son. It has really, really helped. So what I'm going to do to help that along is, I remind you, and I brought one of these last time I taught too, from John Piper's book, Providence. He's in this section... Real quick, he's in this section where he's explaining who God reveals himself to be. And Moses asks him, who should I say is coming? He says, I am who I am. And that title, I am, remember Jesus also said, you know, he told the Pharisees before Abraham was, I am. And what was their response? They took up rocks right away to kill him. Because he knew Jesus was saying, I am God, just like Yahweh, that God I am. And so the same things that apply to I am when, in the Moses conversation, the same things are going to apply to Jesus. Okay? So here's Jesus, the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. John Piper uses the term absolute being, meaning substituting for I am. God's absolute being means... All the universe is by comparison to God as nothing. All that we see, all that we are amazed by in the world and in the galaxies is compared to God as nothing. Isaiah 40, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Do you see what that's saying about God? These things are unimpressive. The universe is unimpressive. Have you ever seen the universe? Just look up. And it's like, I almost starts. sometimes I just wonder if I'm breathing wrong or something. When I look at it, I'm just going, this is all too big. This is all too far. This is all too many stars. The expanse is too much for me to handle. And it's nothing compared to God. It's unimpressive. All the nations of the world. Sometimes 
I remember uh, I, we just took a, my first trip ever to North Dakota. So we were flying out over all this farmland and everything, and I'm looking out the window, you know. And I, I just think about God. I don't know why. So I just think about God, and I'm just, we're going over it. It just, I couldn't tell one field or state. I had no idea where we, they were just seemed endless. The amount of territory was endless, it seemed like to me. And then I looked up, and you know, sometimes we're above the clouds, and I look out, and I'm going, man, it's as far as I can see. It says nothing compared to God. It's unimpressive. One more. God's absolute being means that God is constant. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We say that a lot, but I like this fills it in a little bit. He cannot be improved. He is not becoming anything. He is who he is. There is no development in God. No progress. Absolute perfection cannot be improved. I'm like, Absolute perfection cannot be improved. That's our God. That's who we want to live with. Paradise restored. So in this second coming, let me cover some of this. In this second coming, why we are looking forward to it so much. We will see perfect justice will be served. All sinners and evil punished. Jesus inflicting the wrath. You know, we all love these movies. It's such a common movie script where you'll see a, a small town or could be a family and there's just some evil, you know, overlord of some sort, you know, it could be the judge or somebody in the town and just kind of oppresses everybody and abuses them and they're all like this and they're all scared and then in rides the new sheriff, you know what I mean, sets it all straight, throws the bad guys in jail, shoots some up, you know, and then everybody's happy and walking around. Well, this is what this is at the cosmic level. It, we all love that script. We're all like, come on, come on. Someone, not, someone kill that guy. This is what, is, this is what we're going to realize. You know, um, I, I'm just going to use a worldly phrase here, but, you know, world peace. And I used to mock and be cynical of all this stuff, but world peace will be realized. It will really be realized. I saw this interview. Um, uh, oh, actually, let me, let me start out with a different example. Uh, you know how you ask kids or you, know, you see a, a show on TV or, or it could be a panel and they say, if you had one wish, what would it be? And so what, what, what along these lines, anybody want to guess as to what one of the answers, common answer is? Well, there's the selfish answers like $10 million and whatever. But what, what, what is one that seems to pop up? If you, world, someone said it. Miss America says that? All right, Miss America. I didn't know. Thanks, Mike. Checking out Miss America. Okay. Now, so, um, so someone always says world peace. And, you know, I almost hear that and it's just in one ear, not the other, because that's like not happening, you know? But what they're thinking about really inside their heart is really a noble thing. It's not selfish. It'll help. It'll help everything. I saw this interview. Um, Dan Rather, it was pretty recent. Dan Rather was interviewing Ringo Starr. I don't know if you guys don't know. He's one of the original Beatles. And uh, um, Ringo Starr has made it one of his themes, even now, decades removed, of this slogan, Give Peace a Chance. And that slogan comes from a, a, a John Lennon song. Or was it a Beatles song? Is that Beatles or John Lennon? Well, that, didn't they do a little? 
Yeah, they did a little dividing there. So anyway, so give peace a chance. And during the Vietnam War, I remember, I was not a believer at this time. I remember seeing this on the news, and I'm just like, oh, they're so bizarre. Uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono did a bed-in protest with this song, Give Peace a Chance, about the Vietnam War. And they were in their bed in New York City, and they would bring the cameras in, and it was all kind of weird. I wasn't even a believer, and I thought it was weird. But... Again, I just, I just want to go with the theme. There is this universal, you find a lot of these Christian, you know, truths from the Bible. There is this universe, there can be this universal desire in us that we know that something's wrong. We know that there would be something that we could just straighten this out. There's one big problem with this. We keep trying to do it without God, and that's not going to happen, you know. But so... Love, peace, and joy are truly a thing, truly a good thing to want and to have and that Jesus will usher in. Think about what he brings back. I got this long list here. There will be no more abuse, no more hate and anger, no more selfishness, no more family division, no more divorce, no more sexual immorality, no more stealing, no more lying, no more disrespect for anyone or any group. No more bickering, no more loneliness, sadness, depression, isolation, no more bitterness, no more malice, no more war. Instead, perfect love for God and for neighbor, the two greatest commandments, will be perfectly lived out every day. It's incredible. It's incredible. From, from Revelation chapter 21. And there will be no more curse. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. That ugly death will be put away. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Oh, man, come Lord Jesus. There will be absolute physical wellness. No more sickness. No more disease. No more cancer. No more dementia or Alzheimer's. No more aging, which we said is slow dying. No more doctors. No more hospitals. No more cemeteries. No more death. Again, you will always be at peak performance and improving in mind, body, and spirit. Wow, man, let's get this started. Let's get this started. Another one from Revelation. Oh, no, this is, a, this is from First uh, Corinthians. Death will be swallowed up in victory, and you will put on immortality. There's one from the crazy movies. You know, the bad guy says, ah, immortality. Well, you'll have it. Although you won't be a bad guy. The new earth and new heaven. Kyle started hitting this. I'm going to quote Tim Keller again here. Um, the new earth and the new heaven um, will be material. We kind of get caught up sometimes. We've talked about this in my groups too, where, you know, heaven sometimes and all the other world religions kind of have it as a spiritual thing, you know. But I remember Pastor Gene saying years ago, God does not lose anything, even the bodies that died wherever and the molecules wherever, God snatches them all back 
and he gives them that new body. Even the bodies are not lost. Our new bodies, and the new heaven, new earth is a material. Remember the new earth? Our future is, this is where Kyle started, uh, I actually got the quote from Tim Keller, but Kyle was almost going right down this road on Sunday. Our future is not an ethereal, immaterial future. You are not going to float in the kingdom of God. You are going to walk. You are going to eat. You are going to hug. You are going to sing, I'm quoting Tim Keller, because you have vocal cords. And enjoy the realms of love and satisfaction that you cannot now imagine. You're going to eat and drink with the Son of Man. So, let me finish with this. Uh, How can we have more of this biblical hope? How can we have more of this spirit working in us that's taking us all the way through the day and having that hope that pulls us forward? Because I don't know about you guys, but I can get pretty aggravated, dejected, dull, whatever you want to say, and I'd rather not be. I'd rather not be. I would rather be getting pulled by that hope. I don't want to be that guy in that battle like this, you know? I want to be the guy that sees the end and is getting pulled forward. This is what's offered to us. First suggestion, prayer. Alone, kneel and cry out. One of the things Paul said in his letter to the Ephesians was he said, I kneel. I kneel when I come before the Father. And kneeling then was not the norm at all. They stood in respect when they prayed. But this is a signal of his deep prayer, knowing of how he got the hope and how he grew was God gave it to him. And God was continually feeding him. So I would, I would say to us, get alone, kneel, and cry out for it. Throughout the day, suggestion throughout the day, make, make, make the day all day long. Brief requests for spirit filling, confession of bad or dull attitudes. You want them replaced. I catch myself all the time. And then here's one that God's really opened my eyes to. Stop, and that's the important part, stop. Just slow down. Stop and marvel at the creation. Oh, what he did. The, whole, the Bible says the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full. So you don't have to look very far. Just go through what you know, but stop. We keep running. We keep scrolling on our phones. We keep turning the TV on. We keep whatever we're doing. But stop and look at him. And then connect him with it. He is wonderful. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. They're speaking. Look up at them and ask God, what are they saying? We're all spiritual. If you're born again here, you're a spiritual person. That means you have an interactive relationship with God. Use it. Oh, the word. Read the word. Podcasts. My driving in my truck has become a a changing thing for me. I will get in my truck at one destination, 
a certain person with a certain mindset and I will arrive at my destination, I'm a different person. What happened? What do you think happened? I'm listening to a podcast of good preaching. It's putting hope in my mind. It's connecting me with God. It's wonderful. And books, good books. Music. Oh, the truths of the word are weaved all throughout that music. And God made music special. It appears deep inside of us. Deep inside of us. I, I ask him for songs. I'm not a musical person at all. I'm terrible. Matter of fact, I can sing a song for 20 years, and I still look up there to read the lines. I can't, I can't remember. I just, I, I'm asking God to remember, and, and a lot of times when I wake up or before my normal wake-up time, I'll wake up and, man, there's something really wrong with me. Like, I am disconnected from God. And there's, I just, there's this dread, and I'll start just saying, oh, God, put a song in my mind right now. You know, and... and I need a song, I need a song. And these, all of a sudden the tune, the song's coming, and then I just keep going with that, keep going with that. And I mean, it can be the simplest song, the simplest song in the, sorry, in the universe. Jesus loves me, this I know. That's amazing. Okay, so just let me just finish with this, some scripture verses. Oh yeah, good, we're right on time. Um, promises here some scripture for us just to encourage us me together draw near to God and he will draw near to you if you seek me with all your heart you will find me this is the critical one you do not have because you do not ask are you asking You're not asking with the wrong motive. He wants to be in a relationship with you all day long. You do not have because you do not ask. And this is a killer. How much more will the Father give the Spirit to those who ask? So, you know, it was Jesus teaching, and he was just relating to earthly fathers. Earthly fathers, you know, your kid's going to ask for something. You're going to give them something good. I mean, you don't, you don't, you're just not, it's just a connection. But then we have this perfect father in heaven, and that asking is so critical. And he says, how much more? So you think you're asking for one thing. You think you're just asking for the next 10 minutes or the next half hour. You know, when you're going somewhere, you say, God, you know, I've been asking him lately, um, the psalmist prayed that he would put a guard over his mouth. I say dumb things some, well, too often. But you know, I've been asking God to put a guard over my mouth and to fill me with his spirit. You know, the fruit of the spirit is like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. Is long-suffering in there? Yeah. But it, it ends with self-control. All those things are like this beautiful way to be. So this is just simple, kind of putting it all together. How much more will we give the Spirit to those who ask? You're asking for one thing. Like, I'm just asking my mouth's covered and that God would, you know, do these works. He gives me more than I'm asking for. That's what he's telling you right here. He's a good father. Oh, my gosh, you're asking? Oh, you're asking for that? I'm going to give you that. I'm going to give you more. 
I'm going to give you more than you're asking for. But you do not have because you do not ask. Okay. Well, I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to skip the last two verses. We're about out of time. Let me pray. Father in heaven, uh, we just thank you for these promises. Man, they're just, they're just great. And uh, I ask that you would take your word and that you would put true biblical hope in our hearts, that we would be pulled forward to that beautiful and wonderful day that it is for us, that we would truly love your appearing, that we would want to see you, that we'd be crying out, come Lord Jesus, because we know what you are going to bring. In the meantime, I ask that we would be together seeking you, walking with you, and knowing you, and building your church. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.